Happy Fried Friday. I'm Dennis Lifchak, and Adam Spitz is out this week, but we're continuing our episode about blast chillers and vacuum sealers with Chef Mark Deusler. Enjoy. So Mark, we wanted to talk about some of the technical specifications of the blast chillers and major components. Basically a blast chiller on the outside, a lot of the times looks like a regular fridge, but instead of a small compressor, it has a larger compressor. Sometimes the compressor is three times larger than a regular fridge for the same amount of volume. If you open the door of the blast chiller, you'll see pretty massive fans. Uh, I would say a 20 pan would have either two or three fans. And behind the fans, you have the coil. Whole refrigeration system is oversized to absorb the heat from the hot food coming in. And then on the front, you'll have a control panel with all your settings. And then inside, you'll usually have one or two probes um, to measure food temperature throughout the blast chilling process. The compressor has to be oversized and there are different refrigerants out there. Um, right now, there's there's a push to use low global warming potential refrigerants uh, like R290 and propane. There's been a big, a pretty big move towards that. I mean, I think some of it, isn't that also, um, you, you know better than I do, but I believe that it was it by 2024 that has to be implemented completely? Yeah. And I think right now, um, a lot of blast chillers are using R404 refrigerant, which has been phased out in regular refrigerators. But since there's more refrigerant charge required for blast chillers, that has been pushed to a later date, um, 2024. Yeah. So Dennis, I have a question for you. Um, because I know that refrigeration uh, to somewhat somewhat is a, is a commodity appliance, right? They make massive amounts of it, and then you know you could you could potentially be buying a refrigerator that's brand new but ten years old, right? Um, it, is is looking at their refrigerant um, a good way to be able to establish, you know, maybe how how new the model or the technology is? without having to like get too, too deep of a dive and all the various models uh, that a manufacturer has made. Yeah. I think what you're referring to is um, a lot of big refrigeration manufacturers will just produce thousands of units. And sometimes they'll sit somewhere in the warehouse and they may only get sold a couple of years later. So I think as far as the refrigerant regulation um, that, the date has to be the production date, not necessarily the sales date. So it allows salespeople to still sell last year's model before the regulations kicked in. Right. So if that's something you're interested in, um, you definitely want to check what the refrigerant is. That's kind of a good indicator then. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, going back to your question, I think newer, refrigeration equipment is using R290 um, as refrigerant instead of R134 or 404. Um, So R290 is propane, which is slightly flammable, but much better for the environment if it's accidentally released. Right. 
Um, is there a, where would you go? Like, is there like an EPA website or something that talks about like what the progression of refrigerants are so that you have like a roadmap? Yeah. So e- EPA has a program called SNAP. I think it's, uh, don't quote me on the abbreviation, uh, but EPA SNAP deals with refrigerants and phasing out higher GWP refrigerants in both um, the refrigeration system and the blowing agents, which that's something that goes into the insulation of the units itself too. Yeah. And the, the progression has been um, that with smaller refrigerant amounts, um, that has been a little bit easier to transition to R290. Um, but now they're changing regulations about larger refrigerant amounts, which would affect things like ice machines and blast chillers, as well as uh, a walk-ins too. So what I found was interesting, I, I sat on a few um, that blast chiller kind of learning sessions, I guess, and they were discussing R290. And because you're limited in the amount of R290 you can put uh, per compressor, per per system, I guess, what they'll do is they'll put the they'll put the units in series. So if it's a, a blast chiller, let's say that's like full size, like you said, like a 20 pan, um, you know, you have like th- essentially three compressors for three zones. Each fan has its own uh, compressor or zone. Um, and it kind of sounded like it was a double-edged sword in one because, you know, the more components, the higher chance of failure. But at the same time, you are also able to, from what it sounds like, uh, now I don't know that all manufacturers can do this, but it sounds like if, if one unit does fail, though, um, you're, not at, you're not like dead in the water like you would be if you were using like a, a unit that was just using one large compressor. So you can still... Um, you know, limp along and be able to, um, you know, get things done, even if one of the one of the compressors fails, um, or maybe even if two, I don't I don't know, it depends on what you're doing. Um, you can still keep operating, uh, because you do kind of have like these redundant systems in place. Yeah, I think there's, you could have two redundant systems, and each one of it would have fairly small amount of refrigerant. So if it was to leak out, it would be not, not dangerous. Right. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is that there are two types of blast chillers, depending on size, there's self-contained blast chillers, which means the compressor is in the unit itself. Mm -hmm. And this is usually 20 pan, maybe some single rack roll-ins, but once you get larger than that, I mean, you can have blast chillers with uh, up to five roll-in racks, but usually if you go higher than a single roll-in rack, uh, those are remote condensed, which means there's a compressor condenser unit somewhere on the roof uh, with a refrigerant lines going to it. Um, so I've heard, is that, can they, do they still do that with uh, the R290 as propane or is it now, because I've heard also that they might be using um, CO2 systems. Is that correct? There's, so for the remote condensed ones, um, you do need a lot more refrigerant just because of the size of the compressor itself sure. and the refrigerant in the lines. So um, you can't have R290 in those now because um, it's, 
too much of it, which would be um, potentially flammable. So for those right now, it's still people are using the older R404 refrigerant, um, but you could have cascade systems where mm -hmm. um, let's say you have a water chilled loop. Um, it's kind of similar how water cooled ice machines work where you have some kind of cold water loop or glycol loop in the building. And then the, a smaller compressor at the blast chiller itself, which doesn't require as much power to dump heat into that cold water loop. But um, to my knowledge, that's not really an off the shelf system. And I think- do you see that being um, a viable heat heat recovery strategy? Like, I mean, obviously without stepping into like industrial um, applications, let's say you're a, you know, a, a large resort hotel or somewhere where you, you know, you're, you are still chilling a massive amount of food. Um, again, not, not stepping into that industrial side, but you know, you're doing a lot of cook chill or things like that. Um, can those systems feed back into your, you know, can you recover that heat for hot water usage or things like that? Oh, there's, I think we're, we're just talking about heat rejection. Um, mm -hmm. And those kind of systems are being discussed on the supermarket end uh, for, for mostly like large refrigeration rack systems where um, you do have larger refrigeration loops and then uh, as with hotels, um, you would have a, with a large hotel, you would have a large chiller loop, um, which um, you're rejecting HVAC heat into it and then ice machine heat and then some other refrigeration. Okay. So it sounds like that's already established anyway, within the, it's, within a, a building that size, typically. It'd be yeah. Similar. It's, you, you pretty much need like a building engineer to to maintain that system. It's, it is more complicated and it's a little bit more difficult to calculate efficiency because you have two systems and with a lot of things interacting with it. Sure. That makes sense. But I think, so, yeah, as, uh, as people are trying to reduce the amount of refrigerant in the total system, I think these kind of buildings are going to have to go to uh, more more complex secondary loop systems, and then for um, for self-contained systems that are just well for remote condensed systems where you just have one compressor on the roof um, and the blast chiller downstairs, I think there's still development in refrigerants uh, where they're developing lower GWP um, alternatives to R four hundred four. I think R52 um, and others. So it's not going to be quite as uh, low GWP as propane, but I, th I think it's getting there. What, what do you see as far as, um, you know, for the self-contained units, what do you see as far as like, um, you know, heat, heat gain in, in the space? You know, as we said, you know, right, you're, you're not making something cold, right? We're, we're, we're removing the heat and then just we're removing that energy and just transferring it to another space. In this case, if it's self-contained, I'm sure everybody here has felt the back of their refrigerator at home. Well, that's, that's all the heat energy, right? That was in the refrigerator that's being moved out. So 
how, how do you see, cause I know you've done a lot of work with like Ashray and stuff like that. Do you, do you see blast chillers as, you know, like contributing a significant load to a space? Yeah, I think it's a kind of uh, the classic ice cream shop scenario where you may walk into an ice cream shop um, in the middle of the summer and it's much hotter inside of it than outside because all the heat coming off the soft serve machines is just getting into the space. Sure, so I think this is one of the reasons where um, once you get past a certain size blast chiller, they're almost exclusively remote condensed so that you reject the heat outside. Sure. Um, and I wouldn't recommend having more than one self-contained roll-in unit in a kitchen uh, because that would really heat it up. Um, so there's, there's ways of mitigating that. Um, you, you definitely have to make sure that you're HVAC system is sized up to, to handle the load from the blast chiller. Or, or the other about... thing is you could run blast chiller cycles at night whenever it's uh, cooler. Sure, sure. Well, uh, and then what about uh, placement? Like, do you try to keep it near your hood system if possible without creating any? I mean, obviously, if, if, it, can, if it can be there, the space allows for it. And also just from a safety standpoint or equipment safety even too, you know, you don't want to like, abuse the equipment with too much heat would you recommend putting them near the as close to the ventilation system as possible yeah it's kind of a, a trade-off uh, with blast chiller replacement because if you ask a chef the chef would like a blast chiller as close to their um, their oven or whatever they're cooking the product in to so that you can just remove it put it into the chiller, it kind of minimizes trip hazard risk and uh, scalding risk. Uh, but if you do put a blast chiller this close to a cooking appliance, then it's gonna see all the heat from the cooking appliance, which means um, it's gonna be less efficient. So you wanna find kind of a good balance between still having good ergonomics and a nice um, let's say rack cart path from a combi oven to the blast chiller, but also you don't want it too close to the hot cook line. Yeah. I think you brought up a good point there. Right. And that is like, um, you know, you're, you're trying to make things cold, but they, they, it's like the heat that the refrigeration is putting out can just become like a, a vicious cycle. And it actually ends up stressing the machines out as well. Right. It's just, becomes this loop of it's evacuating the heat energy out of the space. But then if the space itself is hot, it's, it's, it's causing the machine to work harder um, because it's just running the same thing. It's just trying to move the same heat over and over and over again. And that the intensity is just higher. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is a good segue about, um, I know we we're talking about outside heat. Um, let's talk a little bit about, inside heat for the blast chiller and how would you plate or tray an item that's hot just came out of the oven maybe sat there for a little bit to cool it down to 140 and then how would you cover it um, and put it into the blast chiller or uncover it and then maybe if you want to talk about liquids versus kind of solids that you're sure Sure. Um, 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, getting, I think uh, one of the biggest things to, to understand there is that, you know, I know we keep going back to this and, you know, it probably depends on the, on, on the, on who's listening, but, you know, thinking of refrigeration is not making something cold, but really is you're just cooking in reverse. So, you know, a lot of the same, if, if you, if you cook food or you understand, you know, you, you do a lot, it, like the same rules still apply in a way, right. Where if you, if you take a TV tray or a dinner or whatever that is, I mean, I'm just trying to use an example and it's this covered tray and you put it in an oven. Um, that plastic is a barrier um, to the heat, you know, to, to heat getting in, in this case, right. To get that heat energy inside that where the food is cold. Um, but you're, you're doing this because you need to retain moisture, right. Because you don't want it all just to evaporate. Uh, well, the same thing works in reverse too, in the sense of if you, if you cover something in plastic and you put it in a blast chiller, your ability to remove that heat is also slowed down because you've put a barrier between them. So it, it's definitely better to try and have things as exposed as possible without um, some type of insulator between them. Um, but sometimes obviously you have to have something there uh, to, to protect the food. Cause you don't, you still, you still don't want it to dry out or steam if it's really hot when you put it in. Um, that's where it's important also to, uh, you know, run the, the functions or the, the programs appropriately. So there's like delicate chill, strong chill, things like that. And what, what it's doing is it's controlling those fan speeds and how fast it's pulling that moisture out. We had talked about, um, crystallization, um, at one point. Um, and that's really important, right? Because once ice crystals form, that can obviously degrade the quality of the product. Um, if you're talking about desserts or things like that, you can cause, you know, chocolate to bloom, or you can, you can have a, a lot of different issues there. So, you know, paying it, and they've done a lot of that work, luckily, kind of like with combis, right? They've done a lot of that work on the back end, um, the manufacturers, because they, you know, competition is a good thing. And they want to be, you know, they want to be the most user friendly. So they realize that, you know, with all of these, with all of this power, uh, or ability um, to not be able to harness it, it's almost like, it's too much for anybody to really be able to just like sit down and try and work through. So they, they took it upon themselves to make their product more desirable. They went and did a lot of that work on their own. And that's the nice thing is you can go in and you can, you know, hit, uh, you know, pastry custard chill and the program will run as such that it's able to chill down those, the, the custards without, um, you know, freezing the top of them or, or whatever that might be. Um, so leaving things as uncovered as possible or as exposed as possible is certainly recommended. Um, with solids, you know, it's a, it's just, again, it's the same thing as if you think of putting a huge roast in the oven, um, you know, it's going to take longer to cook. So you're not going to try and cook at a super high temperature because you're going to burn the outside and you're going to, you know, the inside is going to be raw. It's, it's a, it's a distance rate and time problem essentially you're just doing it the other way around so you're doing the same thing you're trying to chill it down but you don't want to just chill the outside too quickly and then it turns into a block of ice while the inside's still hot um, that's where the probes come in obviously because you're giving the unit feedback it knows how to modulate the fans and the amount of heat that it's pulling to you know give you give you the best result and it also they're pretty accurate at telling you i think this is really cool too um, they're pretty accurate at telling you how long it, that process is going to take. So you know what to expect. Uh, the one part we didn't cover there was that, and this is very common. 
is that oftentimes you'll, you know, if you're, if you're working during the day and you don't, and you're not running any specific processes, you know, you'll run the chiller at, you know, whatever temperature, say 38 degrees or something like that. Um, and it'll just be running. And as cooks are finishing things up, you know, they just put them in the chiller. They open the door, put the tray in, let's say they're, you know, they're blanching some vegetables or they're low temperature steaming vegetables in a combi. They can just pull the trays out if it's broccoli or something like that. Um, you know, you don't want it to be too cold because you don't want the vegetables to crystallize, but you do definitely want them to chill as quickly as possible to retain, you know, as much quality as you can. So they'll just keep, you know, pulling the, you know, opening the door, putting things in, closing the door and just, you know, using them kind of more like that too. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, not everything is going to be like uber process driven. Sometimes you just, you know, you, you want something to be, uh, versatile in that way. So is that, um, whenever you're cooking asparagus, you want to throw it in the ice bath or sometimes you're cooking shrimp and then you want to stop the cooking process. Is that a way you can use a blast chiller? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you brought up a really good, um, that's, that's definitely probably one of the toughest things. I mean, if we want, we could take one minute here and go through blanching and what that, what that is, because I don't think people really think about it. Um, you know, we said, you know, uh, in this way, but, you know, you think about like cooking is the art of reheating leftovers. Well, blanching is like the, in essence, like, like the most distilled ver- down version of that, of, you know, you're, what you're doing is you're putting a pot of water. If we're blanching on a stove, traditionally putting a pot of water on the stove, you're bringing, you're putting as much volume in there as you can, and you're bringing it up to a boil you're putting salt in there, or maybe you don't, I don't usually salt's a good idea. And then what you're doing is you're dropping your vegetables in, you're cooking them to a certain point, and then you're stopping that process, right? We're, we're, we're taking it to a certain point so that we don't have to do all of that work when it comes time to execute. We're bringing it to a certain point, stopping the process, and then reserving it for when we want to execute later on. So in, in, traditional, in, in the traditional way of blanching, why do, you, you know, why do we bring the water to a boil, right? We're overshooting temperature because we have to compensate for the thermal mass that we're going to put inside the water. That's a lower temperature because it's going to suck all the energy out of the water. So what we're doing though, is we're, we're, we're way overshooting and we're also having to, we, we don't think about it in this way probably, but we're calculating for, let's say it's a gas range, the inefficiency of the range. The range isn't very good at transferring heat, which I'm sure is a separate, (laughs) a separate discussion, but, um, you know, you're, you're compensating for that because you still need the vegetables to cook in a certain period of time before they just turn into mush. So we throw the vegetables in, we let them get to a certain point. Usually it's like they start turning bright green. We pull them out, we put them in ice water and we stop the cooking process as soon as possible. Well, the vegetables are made out of water. So the problem here is like, we're just dunking them in water all the time and we're diluting the flavor. A lot of what cooking is, is removing moisture. So we're not really um, maybe helping the product uh, be the best that it can be. The other issue there is that, you know, the water is wet. So we're putting this water on the outside of it. The water itself might have bacteria in it, even though it's cold, we're still introducing bacteria. So the life of the product is not going to be as long and it's going to degrade faster just in general. So if we're using a blast chiller and let's say it's coupled with a combination oven, um, you know, you don't need to, you, you don't need to blanch at 212 degrees. The water doesn't theoretically need to be boiling. If we spread out, let's say it's asparagus. That was a good, that's a good analogy or a good, a good, sorry, a good, uh, a good food to use. You know, we take our asparagus, we spread it out on a, on a sheet tray, preferably like a perforated sheet tray. We're actually going to set the combination oven 
to maybe like 180 degrees, right? We don't need it at 212. We, we put the we put the, the asparagus in. We know what that, let's say we already have a predetermined amount of time because we've done this a bunch of times. We know how long it takes to, to steam the asparagus. We put it in. If you want to set a timer, you already have a process for it. Great. You run it. The process finishes. You pull the asparagus out. Um, and you'd actually probably pull it out, you know, a lot sooner than you would say if you were putting it in a pot of water because, you know, it's going to take a little bit more time for the chiller to, to remove the heat than it would, or to stop that process than it would be if you dunked it in water. However, your the positive trade-off there is you didn't just dunk all your asparagus in water. By, by steaming at 180 degrees, we also didn't destroy the chlorophyll, um, that, that which makes the vegetables vibrant and green. So they're going to stay green longer. We didn't dunk them in a big pot of boiling water, so we didn't get a bunch of moisture all over them or inside them, and it's not this big violent, you know, turbulent world that we just threw them into and then we put them in the chiller and we know you know by just doing a little bit of research we know how long it's going to take to to chill them down to stop that process well the nice thing too is now we just refine the process and if it sits in the chiller for a little longer it's not like it's 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 like degrading the product further a lot of times what will end up happening too is you know a cook has a big bucket of water which is also in itself dangerous you have this big bucket of ice water or bin and you have this big pot or even if you're using a you know, a, a braising pan or something like whatever it is, doesn't matter. But, you know, by chilling or by cooking and chilling in this way, we're degrading the product. Whereas if we put them in the chiller, we never really introduced all that water to it. Um, so their texture is much better. The color stays better longer. And we've really refined how long that process is going to take. So that also means that I'm able to, um, you know, be able to better understand how long it's going to take my cooks to do exactly this amount of work and yield this much product. The other part of that too, the final piece is cooks are also, if they're doing a lot of stuff, it's not like they're dunking all the asparagus in the water and then immediately taking it right out. There's some cooks, they're going to get distracted. Maybe they have to do something else in the meantime. And that asparagus is just going to sit in that ice water. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's just swimming in cold water. It's just getting worse and worse. So, um, there is really something to be said. And I think that, you know, people look at this, you know, they get kind of some sticker shock when they look at the price of a blast chiller. But if you start thinking about, if you really start thinking about how you're going to utilize it, um, that payback can be pretty quick. Um, and, and it's not even just the paybacks quick, your, your, your headaches are less. So Mark, uh, I know you, you've gotten a chance to experiment with a lot of different blast chillers and different control systems. So can you talk a little bit about, um, are there lower end blast chillers where it's a manual setting where you set, I know I want to blast chill asparagus on, on soft chill for five minutes, or are there certain ones where you actually program in uh, the vegetables? And if you do, then uh, what, what kind of inputs do you give the system? Do you tell them I have X amount of trays or this is the weight? Um, I think it depends on, yeah, I, I know I, I'm going to like, I'm not going to, I don't believe, I, I truly believe that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. And anybody who tries to sell you a silver bullet is selling you snake oil. Um, there because, is a magic bullet though. Yeah. Well, there, I think there's just a, a lot of magic bullets that will help you get there. Um, and the reason I say that is because just if the, the, as soon as we try to like compartmentalize things too much, um, we try to make assumptions about things that just 
it, like you try to fit things in boxes. Now, I think obviously some things you're right. A absolutely. Like you can compartmentalize, like, let's say maybe, maybe like broccoli rob and asparagus. Yeah. The broccoli rob's slightly more fibrous, but their density is about the same. Their size is about the same. You can start running the same programs for the same things. Um, I, I am actually, I, I, I don't mind manual um, equipment. I think, you know, that's, that's kind of part of what you said, you know, it's, it's a, it's about understanding what it's not a silver bullet, but understanding your operation. If you're a more of a manual operation, let's say you're, you know, excuse me, you know, you're doing a lot of blanching of vegetables and it's just like quick cycle and you're constantly moving. I, I really don't see much of a reason to have a lot of like touchscreen capability and programmability. I mean, sure. It's, it's certainly nice to have. I mean, it allows you to, you know, definitely expand your, your versatility quite a bit if you want to step into like, you know, a lot more meats or HACCP or whatever that is. But, you know, if you're, if you're a pretty simple, still relatively manual kitchen and you want to run manual combis and manual, uh, blast chillers and that fits your system, then I, I don't, I don't really see that, that being much of a problem. So yeah, if you're going to like do a lot of blanching, like you said, I would set it probably, this is just me. And this is the, you know, this is really dependent again on the size and the efficiency of the blast chiller, because some are going to be better at removing the heat more than others. So you might be like, I guess you'd say under shooting temperature, you know, you're, if, if, if it's not very good, you're going to try to like set the chiller lower. Um, uh, oh, one, one part about that too, that's really critical is we preheat ovens. You should pre-chill blast chillers, right? You want to stabilize the cavity before you just start putting stuff in there. Um, so, you know, if you're going to be chilling, I would say probably like to me, 38 to 36 degrees right in there for, for is a good general rule of thumb. Um, not, not too low. I, I think because if you go too low and the chiller is really trying to work hard, you might potentially form ice crystals. Um, and then obviously too high and you just kind of wonder, you know, are you really able to get out that, that, that heat as fast as possible? So I, th I think that's kind of the sweet spot. Now that depends. That's just for chilling. If you're freezing or shock freezing, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother animal, but, um, you know, some of it just requires a little bit of trial and error. But the nice thing is, is, and this is where, you know, we were talking about like the reactive side of things is like figuring out the trial and error of how long it takes to low temp steam asparagus and then how long it takes to chill it in a blast chiller. That is not like sexy food, right? That's not like, oh man, you know, I did like some super cool stuff today. And, you know, like it's pretty, it's kind of boring, right? But at the same time, it's, it's really quite necessary and it ultimately allows you in theory to be more creative in the end, because if you can, if you don't have to worry about putting out a million fires, that gives you more time to think about doing other things. With uh, asparagus, you can experiment a little bit and uh, be able to throw out a couple of batches, but uh, let's say you're doing a big roast. Right. Uh, there's a little bit less trial and error. There is some trial and error there, but I would say, you know, really trying to get to the food safety component down first, you know, obviously pre-chilling. I think I'd still stick with the same temperatures, maybe come up a little bit. You know, I'd probably say 37 to 39 degrees. I, I don't think I'd really change it too much. Um, I think at that point, really what you're doing is if you have the ability to do this, I don't know that all chillers um, have this, but, you know, control, controlling that fan speed is kind of like controlling texture on a high speed, right? The, 
the more that air is moving over it, um, I think has, a, you know, that obviously has a lot to do with how much you're, you're getting out. So that's really where you're going to refine some of that. Question came up several times about pre-chilling where I've seen a lot of program blast chillers where you set a program mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily tell you what temperature it's pre-chilled at, but it will tell you that it's pre-chilled. Do you think that's an acceptable way of doing that, that it's better to to have a specific temperature? I think you'll find your sweet. Yeah, I mean, I would say at the very least, probably pre-chill to the temperature range that you're looking at, if not, maybe even a little bit lower, right? Because as we know, it's it's not that I think that, you know, going back to that the, the science there, right, is that it's not, as, as we know, it's not the air that's making it um, the temperature in the room that you're in, it's all the, the solid objects within the room. So including yourself. So if, 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 if the space is, you know, if the space is itself is stabilized at a certain temperature, it's going to make it, uh, better at absorbing the heat energy that comes off of whatever it is. And it, and it also allows the unit to be able to compensate for that. Um, you know, kind of, kind of just makes the whole process that much faster and easier. Um, Whereas if you're, you know, if you're starting from zero and you're trying to do all this, I, I don't mean the temperature is zero. I just mean like a room temperature cavity, you know, now the, now the chiller is trying to remove all the energy that's stored in the metal and the insulation of the cavity and the food, you, you know, you're just kind of compounding the problem or compounding the, the amount of energy that, that needs to be taken out. Plus, you know, it's going to be probably a lot easier to pull all that heat energy off of the stainless steel that's in there first, and then worry about the, the the meat or the roast. And now, you know, now the unit's really just able to focus on that one thing. And everything else around it is also able to absorb whatever, you know, latent heat is coming off of it. And then, and then it can just, you know, the, the, the chiller can just deal with it in that way rather than trying to do everything all at once. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just like preheating an oven, you know, same, same thing. If, if you, if you don't allow an oven to preheat and you put stuff in there, you know, the oven's trying to heat up all the walls and everything else while it's trying to heat your, your food. It's just not really, not, not very effective. Yeah. I think if you're, if you set a program that you're putting in a big roast in the blast chiller, then it may pre-cool down to a, a much lower temperature so that that initial part of the chilling process, the heat will get absorbed more. Yeah. And if you're trying to, I think if you're trying to develop a process that's repeatable, obviously you want to start from, you know, a a temperature that's, you know, um, like a stable starting point, right? Like, you know, if you always pre-chill the blast chiller to 37 degrees and you, and you're going to cook this amount of roast, and even if you add 15 pounds of roast, right, but you let the blast chiller pre-chill, you're you're probably not going to be dealing with as much like time swing in the process as if you just like, well, today it was 85 degrees outside. Yesterday it was 75 degrees or in the kitchen. Yesterday it was 75 degrees in the kitchen. You know, that 10 degrees is, that's a lot, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of stored energy that you're going to have to remove while you're trying to throw all this roast in there. Plus you just add up 15 pounds of roast, you know, you really, you know, you're, 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 you're adding, those are variables, right? Those are just more variables. So the more you can remove that stuff and start from a stable point, you know, there's no, no bakers just throw stuff in an oven and then preheat the oven. They always preheat first. 
So because you're starting from a stable point. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff about roasts and this is kind of down, down my um, comfort zone, but I know nothing about desserts. And can you talk a little bit about how pastry chef or somebody that's baking a cake would do this without a blast chiller and then how the whole process could be improved with, with the blast chiller? I mean, some of the challenges, if you're talking about things like cakes uh, or things like that, you know, some of your challenges are still, of course, you know, you have evaporation coming off of something. So like if you're baking a cake, you're going to have as that, because it's hot and you pull it out of the oven, it's going to evaporate. It's going to lose moisture and that's going to change the texture of the cake, whether, you know, that, or, or even on like a custard or something that's liquid, if you have that evaporation can create a skin or it can change the consistency or texture um, that can, that can become a real problem. And often what you find, it's kind of funny. If you look at, um, a lot of baking recipes, um, they actually build into their recipes ways unknowingly, I think, to compensate for such things. Um, and, and really with the, the, the problem with that or the challenges is now you just have this consistency. Say, if you go from, you know, like platform to platform, um, I would say, you know, in baking, you know, everybody's always says it's like this, um, really rigid, um, you know, it's just really rigid, like has to be done this way, um, craft, I guess you could say, but that that's true, but it's also not true. Yes. There are certainly some ratios that you just don't mess with and you know that they have to be that way. But, um, but, but at the same time too, you can manipulate also certain ratios to achieve certain things, right? Like more flour, make something more cakey or, you know, more fat can make something potentially more, more crunchy or dense or whatever, whatever that might be. As you, as you bake, you learned how to manipulate those ratios, but where, where that becomes really critical is when it's comes time to scale things, or you're making a lot of something, you need to make sure that that's really stable because you, there's kind of really no, I think where, where people, uh, what they're trying to say is there's not really any wiggle room. So once you commit to something, it has to be that way. But the good thing about baking too is it scales well if you know and you have figured out that process. And what's critical to that is refining that process. So, you know, if you build if you if your if your recipe calls for butter that has this much butter fat in it, you want to use that butter with that much butter fat in it. You don't want to use salted butter if you, all your recipes have unsalted butter or you know, I mean it's like the, the good side of it is that it can scale really, really well for the most part. That's why bakers use bakers percentages. It's all ratios. Um, but at the same time, if it's not right, you just committed to something and it can make a whole lot of stuff really not, maybe not your desired outcome where the blast chillers can come in. And we saw this actually a lot too with, um, you know, if you want to think of chillers, the same thing as ovens, you know, uh, I was working with somebody and they had a lot of old recipes that had, um, it was a lot of different kinds of recipes. We were trying all, all different kinds of stuff. And he went from using traditional ovens to using combination ovens. And what you found was uh, we actually had to remove a lot of the leavening agents, uh, leavening agents, uh, chemical risers, right, from certain, certain, uh, certain recipes. And what we found was the reason that the leavening agents were so high was because it's, and then and they'd have another recipe of the same thing, but maybe like a few years back and the leavening agent, was lower. What we found was the recipe was actually being changed because of where they were um, making the product. So let's say you're 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 using an oven that um, 
you know, it's not calibrated. It's it says it's at 350, but it's at uh, it's actually 325. Well, you need more leavening agent to make to get to achieve that rise, right? Because it's just not it's hot enough from when the original recipe was written, say. So what we found was when we were using the combination ovens, which were you know auto calibrating, so to speak. Um, you were actually able to stabilize the recipes, which means you could scale better. Well, the blast chillers allow you to do that too, because if you are making, let's say you're a bakery and you're making a lot of cake. Well, if you make a lot of cake and you just have it all sitting out on sheet trays in the, in the bakery and it's losing moisture, you're affecting, you know, all of that cake that is all being affected. So what, what they'll do typically is they'll either wrap it quickly and the nice, a lot of things, one, one thing that's nice about um, s- some baked goods, and again, this is depending on your, your quality scale or whatever it is you're trying to do, um, they freeze fairly well. So if like you make a lot of wedding cakes or things like that, um, there, there's a lot of people who will freeze those, those cakes and save them maybe for a few days or the refrigerator or whatever it is, and it'll actually hold okay. Um, but if, you, if you're able to, to chill them down quickly and, and mitigate that moisture loss, and really make sure that the product is 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 you know maintaining this certain degree of consistency that works that works in your favor. Um, it also means you're stabilizing your production schedules. Uh, but then they also have settings within that you would you would kind of mentioned um, like uh, delicate settings, I think, and custards and things like that. So th- the same thing works. You know, you'll see like cracking sometimes if uh, custards like cheesecakes or something like that are uh, overbaked or the, like really that's a moisture issue, right? So the moisture is gone, so therefore it cracks because it's you know less volume, and you can you can if you if you can bake for a certain period of time and then chill it for a certain period of time, there's not really like so much variation in that in that swing. Um, you're just able to stabilize those processes that much more, and that also means that you're able to scale more efficiently. So there's a lot of crit- uh, bread too would be a, a a pretty critical one. And uh, I assume that. Um... Most blast chillers have separate programs for dessert items with a more delicate chill where uh, you don't want to disturb the top layer and um, have a little bit of a slower fan speed or some kind of fan speed profile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And also, um, I think that's where also you'd use a lot more of like the shock freezing which is really beneficial, right? Because we're going back to that ice crystal. So what happens if you form ice crystals in the middle of uh, food, what it does is it actually breaks the cellular walls. And that's where you get like leaching of moisture, um, you know, freeze dried. You think of things that are like really dry when they come out of the freezer. That I mean, you still have an evaporative process even in the freezer, but that can be even worse if you have um, ice crystals form inside of something or even on the outside uh, because it breaks that cellular wall. You have a leaching of moisture, which changes the consistency of whatever it is you're making um, and can, of course, degrade the quality. Whereas if you shock freeze, um, you, you, you refine that process to a point where you're minimizing uh, or even even eliminating that, that formation of ice crystals. So if you're a baker, um, I mean, if you want to freeze custards, I guess, or whatever it is that you're making, uh, or or even a cake, um, you're also able to just get that done quicker, right? So if you're going to like cut a cake while while it's room temperature, let's say you chill it down, you get it out, you cut it, and you portion it into pieces that you know are manageable that you can store, and you put it back in the chiller, uh, maybe you wrap it, right? You're not so concerned at this point about moisture loss. Um, you just want to pre-wrap them while it's easy to manage, 
you know, you can cut them, you can wrap them, and then you can shock freeze them. You know, now you have everything ready to go. And then as you need to pull it out, everything is, um, you know, just your inventory is easier to manage as well. And you know where you stand, you know, you know what the quality is going to be, uh, barring any like hiccups in your process. You know, you're able to stabilize that whole, that whole production process. As we're getting closer to the end of this podcast, one of the technologies, the more interesting newer technologies I've seen is cook and chill. And I think there are a couple of manufacturers that offer that. Um, how does that work? You know, I think that's, that's really critical to the, um, you know, adding to the versatility of the piece of equipment. So, so what you're referring to is there's blast chillers that have the ability to, um, to low temperature cook and retherm um, as well as blast chill and hold. So you have a few different things going on there. If you're one, you're, you're now taking this piece of equipment that had at one point a dedicated purpose, sole purpose of chilling something, but you've now given it the ability to um, low temperature cook, as we said, and retherm. Now it's like you've opened up this whole other world and you can do, um, you, you, one, you can still stabilize processes. So if you're from a baking standpoint, you can proof and retard doughs um, all in one process if you need to. Uh, and, and you can control that process, right? Cause you have the probes and you have, or you can do it by time or whatever that is. Uh, the, the other part of that would be, you know, like, I think a lot of, from an institutional standpoint, like if you're a school, even a hotel, something like that, it's a huge labor saver. So some, again, we went back to like that sticker shock of like, oh my gosh, this thing is this expensive. That's crazy. But if you start doing the math and you look at how much you pay an employee to do something, um, and again, I'd like to point out here, like we've been in a labor shortage in food service, like since I can remember, you know, that's not like this is a new thing because of the pandemic. There's never been enough cooks in the kitchen. And it's because a lot of our own practices, right? We, we work everybody to death. Nobody gets a living wage. Well, so we have this labor shortage. Well, th these things help us achieve the goals of being able to, uh, you know, pay people a living wage and also, you know, have a more successful business if we refine these processes. So it, it, in looking at it in that way, if you look at the blast chiller with the retherm capabilities, you know, we'll take a, a school, for instance, like an elementary school or, or a high school or something, and they're going to make uh, breakfast burritos, right, for the next day. Because we, we work with a lot of organizations that um, are really working on getting scratch cooking and, and these whole foods back into schools. And that's a challenge in and of itself. And part of that is, like you were saying, like you have to be able to pass off this labor and spread it out, right, because it's just not it's, that's a lot of people to feed. So, you know, in this case, we would say we're going to make some breakfast burritos. We, we cook all the ingredients and then we chill them all down and they're all ready to go. And then we, you know, assemble the burritos and then we wrap them uh, in foil or whatever it is that we're going to do with them. We put them in the chiller. We put a probe in, in, in there and we close the door and we run a chill cycle and it just holds and maintains um, those breakfast burritos um, overnight. And then at 4 a.m., the chiller turns over and starts retherming. So now it's able to retherm all that food. It's tracking this whole process because the probe is in there. So from a food safety standpoint, we're, we're really doing well. Um, uh, now my cooks, instead of having to come in at, say, and this is a big struggle with, with schools, is that, you know, you have limited labor, but you're also limited by the hours that they can work and you have to bring them in in, in these shifts. Well, if I have to bring people in at six, that means I have to leave by 2.30 or whatever the time is. And that really ca causes a bind for my production schedules. 
well, but it is what it is. So now if I can, if I can put these burritos in and I can chill them overnight and then I can have the chiller turn into a, a retherm cabinet, it retherms all of that food by 7 a.m. And then it just sits there and holds it once it's rethermed. My cooks can now come in at seven instead of six. Um, so I've now gotten another hour out of that, uh, a more productive hour. They can pull the food out. It's also already ready to go. They can put it out. They can serve it. Now, if that means that I can save uh, one cook that I already don't have, or let's say I do have that spot, you know, I'm pretty sure you're 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 saving money in that first year. I would have guessed more so than whatever the initial cost of that blast chiller was. If you start counting, you know, work, you know, insurance, uh, you got to pay workman's comp, you know, you got to pay the salary, all that stuff. I think at that point, it really starts making a lot of sense. Um, and, and that return capability really, I think, adds to that return on investment and really starts making sense. And I think a lot of the newer blast chillers even have Wi-Fi capabilities. So there's ways of monitoring the, the chilling and the reheating process remotely. I think that's, that's pretty neat. So, it, it, you know, even if, let's say you are a school district and you want to monitor multiple sites at the same time, or even just be able to log, all, you know, the work that's being done, you know, you get, if you get a health inspection and you can, and they're asking you for your, you know, so, you know, what have you been doing? How you've been serving it? And you just say, well, hold on a second. Let me just hit the print button. <laughs> you know, I mean, one, the health department's going to be happy about that, you know, because they can see that you're obviously, you know, doing your due diligence and that there's some kind of proof in the pudding. So um, that, that can only strengthen your relationships with them. And you are just doing, you are doing that work. So, you, and you're doing it in a safe way. Yeah. And the other um, thing that I think it's cool about these um, cook and retherm and chill blast chillers are um, that, they are operating under heat pump technology, not not just resistance heat. Is that right? I don't know too much about that one. I know I know about the resistance heat. Um, I don't know about the heat pump technology. If you know more, I'd love to to know more about it. I haven't I haven't experienced that too much. So, so the ones that you were familiar with, they they just have a resistance heater. Yeah, I think from uh, I think that they just they're able to heat that much quicker. Uh, I, mean, no, I know how the heat pump technology works. I just don't know how it works in as far as like re-therming and, and I guess maybe unless it's like... I, I think I would have to have to look into which manufacturers offer it or if any of them do, but it would be running the refrigeration cycle backwards because the thermal expansion valve could potentially flip and right. instead of um, providing uh, chilling just direct the heat in there but um, would you see this as being a more reasonable solution on like on remote systems where you have a larger system i think you can do it with both but it also i think depends on how much heating you're doing so it's it's definitely more efficient but if you're only doing a little bit of heating maybe it's not cost effective um i i know that they have gotten better too with one of the challenges with the blast chillers back in the day was you couldn't run them as a refrigerator or a freezer for extended periods of time because of the uh, uh, defrost cycles. They just don't, they need to manually defrost. Um, for those of you that are out there in TV land, you know, if you, your refrigerators and your freezers, they have to run on defrost cycles to get rid of the buildup of moisture on the coils. If you're obviously, if you're running a blast chiller all the time, it, it can't really, 
ever have that opportunity. So you usually what you'll do is you'll turn them off and open the door and allow them to to defrost the, and get the moisture off the coils. Um, I know that they've gotten better with that. So you can run them for longer. Um, you still have to do it, right? Um, it's just the nature of the beast. But um, I know that they've gotten much better at that. So you can actually use them and, and hold food cold for longer. I think that's that's probably really important, an integral piece to the whole retherm, right? Because if you want to hold the same stuff in the cavity and then retherm at a later time, you know, it's kind of necessary. Yeah, I think, I think most operations, once you blast gel something, you take it out maybe wipe down the fridge and get it back up to room temperature where everything defrosts automatically then, or right. just manually. And then you pull the tray underneath with a condensate. And then as far as holding, I know there's one manufacturer that uh, makes remote condensed blast chillers, but they also have a compressor inside the unit itself for holding. So after the blast chiller cycle is done, um, the compressor upstairs turns off and it's just a smaller compressor that holds um, the food refrigerated for, um, let's say, overnight until it's you take everything out. Interesting. That's pretty smart. So I know this has been uh, quite a long episode. We may break, uh, break this up into uh, two parts. So Mark, really appreciate your knowledge Sure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this this has turned out to be a very interesting conversation. And I know blast chillers are fairly new to the U.S. market. And uh, there are a lot of uh, European manufacturers out there and some, some U.S. manufacturers that are breaking into this, this market. And more people are learning about them and the advantages of them. And it's great having you highlight um both the technological as well as labor saving aspects of them. Yeah, they're, they're a great tool. I think the more we can understand about them, definitely the more value we'll see. Well, with that said, thanks everybody for listening to Fried Friday and hope to have you tune in next week. Thank you. Bye.